I invite you this morning to join me in the Gospel of Matthew, 28th chapter. Matthew 28, as we continue early here in our series on knowing God, the attributes, the nature of who God is. Matthew's Gospel, 28th chapter. Begin reading at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, help us now that we see this rightly. Let us hear this, your word. May it have profound, eternal effect in our lives. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He had been an unbeliever. His mother had prayed for his conversion, and yet he had not been converted. He finally entered into conversation with a pastor who turned out to be his intellectual equal and asked hard questions and gave sound answers. One day after a lengthy discussion, the man was left by himself in the courtyard of the pastor's home. On the table before him, scrolls, parchments, texts of Scripture. And from over the wall, he said he heard what sounded to be children playing. And in a child's piping, sing-song voice, he heard, Tole lege, tole lege, take and read, take and read. And before him on the table was the text from the book of Romans. And through that word of God, the man we know as Augustine found salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, Augustine was no ordinary follower. His works take up volumes. He became a minister. And in one of his smaller works, the one most widely known, most popular confessions, we have this extended prayer. Listen to these words. Great art thou, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is thy power and thy wisdom infinite, and thee would man praise. Man, but a particle of thy creation, man that bears about his, him his mortality, the witness of his sin, the witness that you resist the proud, yet would man praise thee, but a particle of thy creation. Thou awakest us to delight in thy praise. You have made us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it repose 
in thee. Grant me, Lord, to know and understand which is first, to call on thee or to praise thee. And again, to know thee or to call on thee. For who can call on thee not knowing thee? For he that knoweth thee not may call on thee as other than thou art. Or is it rather that we call on thee that we may know thee? We are considering what it means to know God. What does it mean to actually be acquainted with the triune God? And that is our emphasis this morning. John Piper said people are starving for the greatness of God. But most of them would not give that diagnosis of their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. And I think there's much to say for that. Far too often, the struggles, my friend, that you have as a believer in living have more to do with your shallow thoughts of God than any other failure in your life. Steve Lawson, the most important thing about you is who you believe God is. Tell me what comes to your mind when you think about God. I'll tell you everything else about your life. Everything about you flows from your understanding of who God is. What you think of God is the mainspring from which your entire being flows. Like the fountain of a house that's, a, excuse me, the foundation of a house, not the fountain of a house, the foundation of a house that supports the entire structure. Your true intimate knowledge of God is what upholds your life. Gives a direction, purpose, and strength. In our confession for our own church, we say this of God. We believe there is one and only one living and true God. An infinite, intelligent spirit, the ex nihilo out of nothing creator and sovereign ruler of heaven and earth, inexpressibly glorious in holiness and worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. We further believe in the trinity and unity of the Godhead. God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in every divine perfection and executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. Yes, today we'll speak to the trinity. Now, I admit, I have, in one sense, bitten off far more than I can chew. There just simply isn't enough time. Some of you are managing your way, maybe I should say enduring your way, through Matthew Barrett's book, Simply Trinity, as you're doing that Sunday school class together. Now, how many of y'all, I'm just curious, how many of y'all in that class? You'll admit it, you're in there. Okay. That weird sounds coming here, brothers. Is that me? Let's try that. I made an adjustment. Now, how many of you feel like you're in over your head that are in that class? Every last one of you. Okay, that's going to be annoying. I can already tell. Switch me over to just the pulpit mic. Give them just a moment. Can this be done? 
There we go. Thank you, brothers. The knowledge of the Trinity is the knowledge of salvation. God has revealed himself to us in very specific ways. We confess, we believe in the triune God. One God, three persons. You see, the pious mind, to quote Calvin, doesn't dream up for itself any God it pleases, but contemplates the one and only true God. And it does not attach him to whatever it pleases, but is content to hold him to be as he manifests himself. This mind restrains itself from sinning, not out of dread of punishment alone. I love this. But because it loves and reveres God as Father, it worships and adores him as Lord. Even if there were no hell, it would still shudder at offending him alone. Therein is the right attitude toward God. Not just fear of hell, to drive, but love of him. Now when we talk about the Trinity, some will object. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. You are absolutely and entirely correct. You will look without any hope of finding the word Trinity in any Bible concordance or listing of words in the text of Scripture. So the question becomes, have we then somehow made a terrible mistake by using the term Trinity? Trinity, Latin trinitas, literally means threeness. And yet the doctrine of the Trinity is woven, however you want to describe it, throughout the text of Scripture. Now, we've made all sorts of mistakes about the Trinity for a little over 2,000 years. You can go back to early church era and find all sorts of errors and heresies, either about the nature of God, the nature of the Trinity, the nature of the Incarnation, the relationship of the persons. The most serious problems in our own time among evangelicals have been that we have changed the understanding of the Trinity into much more sociological terms. We've done it purely in terms of relationships. And Barrett in his book, Simply Trinity, says the result of that is we've come up with the political trinity and the inclusive trinity and the ecological trinity and the feminist trinity or the patriarchal trinity or the sexual trinity. And all of these ultimately deny what the text of Scripture says. My brothers and sisters, we seem hell-bent as a people on having a God that fits our own idea and our own definitions, as though God has not spoken, as though God has not revealed himself. We want a God who's like us. The upside of a God like you is it's hard to offend him because you make him like you. The downside of a God like you is ain't much he can do as in next to nothing. You on, a, on an eternal powered scale would not be helpful. You haven't the capacity. The Trinity, to quote from Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting the Trinity, the Trinity is not some inessential addition to God, some optional software that can be plugged into him. At bottom, this God is different, for at bottom, he's not the creator, ruler, or even God 
in some abstract sense. He's the Father loving and giving life to his Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, a God who is himself love, who before all things could never be anything but love. This is the triune God. The triune God is gloriously above us and graciously with us. You follow that? The triune God is gloriously above us and yet graciously with us. You see, the Trinity is anchored to the doctrine of salvation. Without the Trinity, you don't have a doctrine of salvation. The two are dependent upon one another. Our problem is the problem that Luther uh, assigned to Erasmus. Your God is too human. So let's consider for a moment. Now, I know somebody's going to start this question immediately. Well, now, are you saying that everybody has to be Trinitarian to be Christian? And I would say to you this, I think it's possible to come to saving faith in Christ without understanding much about the Trinity. But I do not believe that you can continue in the Christian faith in growth and reality without ultimately affirming the doctrine of the Trinity. This has defined what it means to be Christian for over 2,000 years. And anything that changes that is denying the heritage of the doctrine of the church of Jesus Christ for two millennia. That takes a little bit of chutzpah. That takes a little bit of arrogance. So what is it that we affirm? Two things. God is one. God is three. We affirm those two things. We first affirm God is one. From Shema Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus quotes this, Mark chapter 12. The most important commandment, he said, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and with all your strength. In affirming the Trinity, we are not affirming tritheism. That is, there are not three gods. One God. Monotheism is woven into the text. There is only one God. J.I. Packer in his little book, Concise Theology, the basic assertion of this doctrine is the unity of the one God is complex. The three personal subsistences are co-equal and co-eternal centers of self-awareness, each being I in relationship to two who are you, each partaking of the full divine essence along with the other two, the one God, he is also, and equally they, and they are always together, always cooperating with the Father, initiating the Son, complying, and the Spirit executing the will of both, which is his will also. Now, if that seemed like a mouthful, it was. My friends, I expect you to be somewhat intellectually frustrated today. I shouldn't be the only one. 
We stand on the cusp of the reality of a God who has revealed himself and who at the same time is beyond us. So there's a place to bow your head and worship. God is knowable. He is not comprehensively knowable by finite creatures like us. We can know him truly, even if we cannot know him entirely. And that ought to be satisfying and comforting. We believe God is one. But that leads us to the second essential affirmation. God is three. You have to do something with this in the text. I remind you that were it not for the incarnation of the Son of God, were it not for Jesus coming, the celebration of Christmas, which is fast crashing upon us, and I say crashing because sometimes that's how it feels when you're trying to get all the gifts. Right? And juggle everybody's family. Anybody else struggle with that? Juggling whose family and what time and where? Did you get the right gift? Did you spend enough? Did you spend too much? And how in the world am I paying for this in January? I just stress some of you out more over that than the Trinity. God comes in the flesh. It is with Jesus we get the revelation clearly of the Trinity. You would not come to the conclusion of the Trinity just by reading the Old Testament. You would see some shadows. You'd have some things you'd scratch your head about. But it is not till Jesus shows up that we get the full-blown revelation. God is one, yes. God is also three. James White will refer to three foundations of the Trinity. Monotheism, there's only one God. Foundation two, there are three divine persons. Foundation three, the persons are co-equal and co-eternal. Does this matter? Why so much energy? You see, my friend, there are people who are trying to convince you otherwise. They don't show up on your doorstep as much as they used to, but you have some who will come to you and say things like this. As man is, God once was. And as God is, man can become. Now, let me just give you a quick heads up. That is heresy. Right there. God is not a highly evolved human being. And you and I will never become God. That's the teaching of Mormonism. Others will come to you and say, well, you all messed up. The scripture never says Jesus is God. It says he's a God, little God. He's bigger than us, but lesser than the one true God. That, too, is a heresy. And that's what Jehovah's Witnesses would bring to your doorstep. But I'll take it a step further. Secularism will deny this entirely 
because secularism is going to deny, first of all, that there is a God, and even if it will allow that there is a God, that God, in the opinion of secularism, is unknowable. Or he's just like us. And that, my friend, is damning to the soul. Listen to Millard Erickson. The doctrine of the Trinity is of great importance because it's intimately connected with the Christian salvation. Traditionally, Christians have believed that salvation involving forgiveness of sin and reception of new life is possible because the second person of the Godhead took on human form without giving up his deity. In this incarnate form, he bore the sins of humans as their substitute. Thus, he was able to present to the Father the perfect sacrifice for human sin on the basis of which the Father forgave their sins and the Holy Spirit conferred new life. If the doctrine of the Trinity is not true, then the understanding of salvation must be modified. It is Jesus who comes and speaks of the Father. It is Jesus who distinguishes the Father from the Son and the Son from the Father and the Spirit from the Son and the Son from the Spirit and the Spirit from the Father and the Father from the Spirit. I got that right. I want to tell you, it's nothing quite as nerve-wracking as preaching on the Trinity with a lot of people paying really close attention. Let me give you these connections, and this is merely in the way of survey. I cannot recommend to you highly enough the book by Matthew Barrett, Simply Trinity. Get it, read it, put it down. You'll need to on occasion, maybe frequently. But consider these matters. There is a connection to creation. Think of John's words as he opens his gospel, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This sheds light, does it not, on the early chapters of Genesis. What does it tell us whenever we read in Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Do you ever read that in Genesis and say, who's us? Because the Old Testament is powerfully settled on monotheism. God is one, and yet the text cannot be translated any other way in Genesis 1 other than this. Let us make. Angels don't create. Let us make. John 1, in the beginning was the Logos, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created by Him, and without Him was not anything created that has been created. Hmm. In creation, you see it in the Psalms. Psalm 104.30, when you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. Psalm 104.30, the work of the spirit. Genesis, the spirit of God hovers over the formlessness of this world. 
Paul will speak of the greatness of Christ and use these words in Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Trinitarianism is bound up in created order. Trinitarianism is revealed in that and is revealed as well in the incarnation. Some of you are wondering, preacher, why we read the Annunciation to Mary? It's October. That's a Christmas text. You don't do that till after Thanksgiving Day. That's when we do all the Christmas texts, right? Weird old man, what's he doing? Doesn't he know how the Christian calendar works? Yes, he does. But when you saw that, when you read that, when you heard that, the Spirit of the Lord shall be upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow be at work in you. The one who comes from you shall be called Son of the Almighty. Hmm. Or these words, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit come upon you. I'll read it clearly. The power of the Most High overshadow you. The Holy One born to you will be called the Son of God. You can't escape it in, as early as Christ's baptism. Matthew 3, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, being a good Baptist, you understand how that works. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he, speaking of Jesus, saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, John the Baptist witnessing as well, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Here you have all three persons of the Trinity present in the baptism of Jesus. You see, some folks out there affirm a heresy called modalism. And what modalism says is that God just comes and shows himself to us in different modes. The mode in the Old Testament was the Father alone. The mode then shifting to the Son of God in the New Testament and then shifting to the Holy Spirit after the resurrection and ascension. That, my friend, has all sorts of problems, not least of which is what do you do with this text unless God is acting as a ventriloquist? Because we have the Son, God in the flesh, being baptized. From whence comes the voice that says, This is my Son whom I love. And what about the Spirit descending like a dove? This is the death knell to all modalistic concepts. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit present at baptism. It is seen throughout the drama of redemption. Now, you know me well enough that if I get a chance to run to Romans or Ephesians, I'll do it in a heartbeat. But Ephesians, the first chapter, powerfully speaks to this. Let me do this quickly with you. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at the third verse. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us, for he, the Father, chose us in him, the Son, 
before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he, the Father, predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him, the one he loves, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him, Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him, the Father, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who are the first hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I know that's a long text, but did you follow what happens here? The Father chooses you to save you. The Son comes and dies on your behalf to give you redemption and forgiveness of sins, and God the Father selects you in Christ. That's your means of salvation. And it comes to you because the Spirit the third person of the Trinity comes and brings this salvation to you, marks you as being the Lord's, and is set on you as the seal, the promise that he will fully and finally redeem you. It is Trinitarian salvation. Or listen to 1 Peter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. Strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. This is Trinitarian. It is seen not only in the entire drama of redemption, but in the atonement itself. Isaiah 53, the text about the suffering servant. It was God's will to bruise him, speaking of the Messiah who is to come. Or you read it in Hebrews 9, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? The blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offering himself unblemished to God. Seen in the resurrection. Acts 2.32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of the fact. John 10, the reason my father loves me is I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, authority to take it up. This command I receive from my father. Paul in Romans 1, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Where do we begin this morning? With the great commission. What is the commission of the church? Make disciples of all nations. Then do what? Baptize those you're making disciples in the name, singular, monotheism, 
of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinity. We use it regularly on Sunday nights as our benediction from 2 Corinthians 13, 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Some of you automatically want to say amen there because that's what we do. Here's my question. Is this the God in whom you believe? Is this the God in whom you trust? Now, of course, <laughs> you're getting Charlie horses in your brain. It hurts because we are confronted with this glorious, majestic, completely other God. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. And yet, as we face this God, we must be willing to worship him as he has revealed himself. Every denial of the Trinity is a refusal to hear and heed this. The doctrine of the Trinity, said A.W. Tozer, is truth for the heart. We believe in one God. The Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And what the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, he spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. That, my friend, is the Nicene Creed since the 300s held by the church. I know some of you sitting there, well, doggone, I wish you'd done something about how to fix my life. I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that. How about something practical? My friends, do not treat with contempt that which is the foundation of everything you believe. See, sometimes your problems have gotten bigger than they justify because you don't think about the greatness of God, you simply think about the bigness of your problem. And that leads you to dangerous places. Can I tell you, down that path is self-centeredness and self-pity and sin. I hold before you to point out to you the great, glorious, triune God. 
maker of all things and your redeemer. He called you. He chose you. He poured out his life for you. We come upon the Christmas season. You probably noticed in that Nicene Creed, the lengthiest part in the description is about the Son of God because that, my friend, is the contact point for us in salvation. God has come in the person of his Son. You know him, what does he say? You see me, who you see? The Father. Who is it that gives the Holy Spirit? It's the Son. Who is it that's ascended to the right hand of the glory on high? It is God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity. We have one in heaven who is our Savior. And through him, we have communion with this one true God. Oh, brothers and sisters, never run from this understanding. Never run from this because it overwhelms you. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, it is overwhelming. But this is the God who has set his love on you. Let us worship him and do it well. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son,